This is Andrew Hall. You're listening to Dead Hand Radio, a podcast about the Cold War, its history, and the effects it has on our culture, technology, and the future of our world. World War II ended 75 years ago after the atomic bombings of the Japanese cities Hiroshima on August 6th and Nagasaki on August 9th, 1945. These are the only two times in history that atomic weapons were used against enemy targets. Though it brought the end of the most terrible military conflict ever experienced by humanity, the toll of these two attacks was tremendous. Some would argue it should have never been done. Others say there was little choice and it saved lives. One thing we can all agree on is that it should never happen again. This episode was recorded on the eve of the 75th anniversary of the Trinity Test, the world's first atomic bomb and is being released just prior to the 75th anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. By this time in 1945, war had already ended in Europe, and the leaders of the UK, US, and USSR were dividing up the spoils and redrawing borders for the nations of Europe. There was an obvious distrust growing between the Soviet Union and their Western counterparts, and the use of atomic weapons by the US against Japan compounded that sentiment for Stalin. At the same time, the Western allies were frustrated by the Soviet Union's interference with so-called democratic elections in Eastern Europe, and military posturing by the Soviets in East Germany increased tensions even more. Only through a very creative diplomatic response by the U.S. was war averted, but nevertheless, tensions continued to escalate in the years to come. There are conflicting arguments as to the beginning and ending of the Cold War. Some argue that it started with the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Others say it started when the Soviet Union tested their first nuke. What's notable is that the Cold War was centered around the proliferation of nuclear weapons on a global scale and was a precarious time in the history of humanity. As part of my journey with this podcast, I visit many online resources to increase my knowledge of the events that took place during the Cold War. One of those resources, AtomicArchive.com, is a website dedicated to collecting and storing information, photos, and videos related to the testing and development of nuclear weapons and the events of the Cold War. With an abundance of information, photographs, videos, and links to additional resources, AtomicArchive.com is an incredible resource for anyone interested in studying the history and science of the atomic bomb and the effects it has on our world. My guest for this episode of Dead Hand Radio is curator and webmaster of AtomicArchive.com, Chris Griffith. Welcome to Dead Hand Radio, Chris. Thanks for being here. Likewise, really glad to be here as well. Excellent. Um, so I'd like to start off each episode with a little bit of a background for my guests. Uh, would you mind sharing a bit about your background and what got you interested in atomic weapons? Sure, sure. So I'm a child of the 80s. So you know, in high school, I grew up during the, the Reagan era, you know, the Soviets were the evil empire. And, you know, the threat of nuclear war definitely hung over us. 
of Nerissinio films like The Day After or Threads was certainly a much broader fear um, that we lived under at that time. And my undergraduate degree is actually in physics. I went to UC Santa Barbara. So I kind of have this inherent sort of responsibility, you know, as a, you know, at that time, you know, beginning physics major to sort of, you know, take some ownership of the problem. And the way I took that is, you know, if people are informed, hopefully they make good decisions. So let's figure out how to inform people. So fast forward a few years in my um, junior year or so, there was a, a lovely little program called HyperCard. And it actually predates the web. And in a lot of ways, it's very web-like. But it's, that's a whole other long podcast on that whole world. But from that, I had my first opportunity to see what this concept of multimedia was. You know, kind of remember back in the early 80s, computers were mostly, you know, command lines and green screens. And I saw a Mac SE being that would drive a laser disc. And I was like, ooh, we can do some really neat stuff here. So I wrote a small hypercard, they were called Stacks, the programs were called Stacks, called the Physics of the Atomic Age. Just trying to explain, yeah, you know, sort of the high school level of what makes an atomic weapon, what is all this ticking. Around that time, sort of then began the rise of CD-ROMs. So, you know, I know I'm really dating myself with all this. And coming soon was, you know, 1995, a, a rather significant anniversary. So I developed and authored a CD-ROM title called Atomic Archive. It was sold through a, a large company at the time called SoftKey. You know, it was in like, you know, CompUSA when there were CompUSAs and that sort of thing. Um, it had tiny little video because that's all we could do at the time. And from that, I eventually got the rights back. And that begat the website. Um, we did publish another updated version of CD-ROM. And as you know, you know, CD-ROMs now, you know, you know are, are things of the past. So from that, then basically the CD-ROM content just slowly began migrating. And all of this was predicated with, you know, trying to provide educational materials, high school level, you know, early college, on the atomic age and just kind of just grew from there. Interesting. And, and so you, you built the first website at, around what time? What, what year? Um, that probably would have been around 96, 97. So as a companion, as you know, partly as a companion, as a, you know, websites were just starting to emerge into the world. Like, Ooh, this is kind of an interesting something else to do. So, um, now I should also say I do have a well. At that time, it was a certificate. Now it's a minor in global peace and security that UC Santa Barbara offered. So I actually, you know, did actual research in this field during my undergraduate world. So I can talk to you all about the use of tritium as a natural uh, timetable for disarmament, which was well, which was my uh, senior project. Cool. Has the website gone through different iterations since you built it, or is it still the same as it was when you first built it? 
actually a brand new version went live yesterday. Um, I finally dusted it off. No, it, it's gone through a couple, three different variations. I remember the early, early days, there was this little program called Page Spinner I used, which was really nice because it would, it was a text editor, but it was designed for HTML authoring. So as you're kind of learning all the, the tags and the capabilities, it actually really highlighted and did a really nice job. My day job now for like the past 25 years is in user experience. So I always look to see how a, a system works and how does it interact with the user. So I was like, oh, this is nice. I can actually understand what's going on. And then a lot of self-authoring. I tend to do a lot of personal projects on the web. Um, I use a lot of web technologies within my day job. So there's a lot of bleeding. So, you know, I build prototype websites for, for testing. I use web technologies to make mobile apps and various testing. So it's, you know, very much a part of my, my normal day to day. Um, for a long time, you know, the site was very, you know, it was static. A lot of work got done in the early 2000s, actually. Um, I was a recipient, a co-recipient of a grant from the National Science Foundation as part of the National Science Digital Library effort. So I worked with a couple different universities in creating um, entries in a, a specialized portal for searching on, on nuclear issues. Sadly, uh, that work has now been shut down due to maintenance and security on the backend server issues. But that was really like the last time I had touched it for a while. As we all know, technology keeps moving forward and forward. In some ways, this pandemic that we're all under actually served as a, uh, an opportunity to finally say, oh, let's go fix it. So I just rebuilt the, the entire website, the thousand or so pages of it. Hopefully bigger pictures, responsive, a lot more mobile friendly and that right. sort of thing. Yeah, it's a wealth of information, very valuable resource for researchers. Okay. Uh, well, it's, I've, I found it by doing research. And once I found it and saw that um, the amount of information you had in there, the quality of the information, very well researched. Uh, I haven't looked at the new version of it. Uh, it's been a few days since I've actually visited the website, but. It's not even 25 hours old, so I won't hold it against <laughs> okay. you. I, I will look at it post haste. Um, <laughs> so collecting all that data and the archives, the photos, the videos, how, how are you able to accumulate all that? Well, it helps being a bit of a pack rat. Um, the nice thing with one of the reasons why what drew me partly into the project and what's been able to help the project is a lot of the, especially the photography is public domain. You know, these, the, the photos from Los Alamos and Trinity and the bomb shots, those are all government photos. So those are easy to get a hold of. Now, yes, the things like Getty and Corbis have their copies that you can license from them, or you can simply call the public affairs office and ask for them. So I have CDs and DVDs from very, you know, from Los Alamos, from Oak Ridge, from the DOE to have access to it. So that helped a lot as opposed to 
something that where that might be more more controlled. You know, it's like I'm also a spaceflight fanatic as well. Same thing. It's just a matter of just going to NASA and say, well, let me have at it. The videos um, on the CD-ROM, I actually have a relationship with uh, Pete Coran from VCE. He's the filmmaker behind the movie Trinity and Beyond. So he uh, granted me some use on the CD-ROM for some of the video there. And then a lot of the other documents, a lot of them are, are public documents. Some are just rescued documents uh, from years gone by. A great example is the Smythe Report. So that was published by the government, but it never fully existed digitally. And probably 10 years ago, I sat down and finished the OCR. I actually have a copy of the 1946 book on my bookcase right next to me. And I just simply sat down and OCR'd it. I'm actually getting ready. I have some pamphlets, mini books uh, from about 20 years ago from Japan that I'm getting ready to, to transfer as well. Yeah, my, my holy grail is I actually have a copy of the 1946 Strategic Bombing Survey that has this very thin and very now very delicate, two of them, fold-out damage maps of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I'm still trying to figure out, we're talking probably three feet by four feet. You know, these are large maps. I'm still trying to figure out how to carefully scan them. You know, but those are the things that I, you know, I will find and stumble across. Um, and then I also try to augment because a lot of times these things were published, you know, decades ago with the best that was then. But then it's like, well, what's the best now? So, for example, on the website, there's this huge section on the history of the Manhattan Project, which was written by um, OSTI, the Office of Scientific Technology, and I forget the I. It's up there, it's free. You can go to the, the government website and see it. It was done 10, 15 years ago. So the pictures were tiny. You know, I have a printed version. I was like, wait, I have all these images. Let's make this, you know, a little more alive. Because like with many government projects, they're done, they're funded, and they disappear and fall off into the ether. You know, I just actually had to deal with that problem on the redo of the website. I had links to the full treaties, arms control treaties, on the State Department website. It's gone under a complete revision, and they're no longer there. Or if they're there, they are so hidden, I can't find them. So if I actually wanted the full text to say the SALT-1 treaty, I don't think I'm finding it on state.gov. So just a, a matter of accumulating all this uh, stuff over the years and some of it scanning it and putting it on the website yourself, other um, parts of it have been digitized already and then you just incorporated those into your, your archives. Uh, did you have to go through any special process to get permission for using all this stuff? Usually just a quick email, um, kind of a thing, or, or it was old enough. It might've been just a simple phone nice. call. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the website is full of factual data pertaining to nuclear weapons testing, um, in the U S and the UK, but there seems to, well, okay. It's obviously there's been an update, so I may, be speaking incorrectly, but I didn't see a lot of information about the Soviet Union weapons testing programs. 
Partly, there's not a ton out there. I mean, the Soviet Union being what the Soviet Union was and also kind of what Russia is, peering into their history and their weapon systems is still, you know, very much on the high wonky side to get in and get at. So other than the, hey, we knew a test happened and this is about the size we think it was, or if it was under a treaty obligation where the test was, had to be divulged along with other data, then we know some stuff. It's, it's tough. There, there are really only about two or three videos. I mean, there's some photographs of Joe 1, there's a little bit for Joe 4, and there's a, a little bit for the uh, Tsar Bomba, the largest nuclear test. But beyond that, um, the Soviet Union, just being a very closed world, didn't publish in the same way that the U.S. did. So... And what once went underground, there was you know there there's nothing yeah. to show. And I, but I'm sure that those archives still exist somewhere. Oh, I I know they were filmed and photographed up the wazoo just like ours were. So and in fact, actually, I was um, as part of the rebuilding, I was going around and saying, hey, what's been released since the last time I looked. And I know, for example, Pete Coran has been working with both Los Alamos and Livermore and assisting them in digitizing and cleaning up a lot of the old footage because there's still a lot of data in those films uh, to actually go back and, and do a lot more precise measurement, say on the yield of a test and those sorts of things. And there's actually, Lawrence Livermore has been putting a modest amount up online and coming back to that, that same thing. The Soviet Union, I'm sure, is holding, realizing if the U.S. can analyze, well, we can reanalyze and understand what we had in our data as well. And they actually use a lot of the footage in that data to validate their computer models. Since currently neither the U.S. nor Russia are actively testing, the only way that they can understand are the warheads going to work like they're supposed to is through computer simulations. And they run the simulations against old weapons footage. So there's, you know, there, there's still some national security aspects around, around the footage in the films to a degree. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, I, I saw on your uh, website there that some of those videos are available. Well, you have some some videos for sale on the website. Uh, are those videos that you've produced? I mean, the the site is completely supported through Amazon revenue, so we really don't sell anything anymore. I mean, we used to sell the CD-ROM ages ago, but it's basically people coming to the site, reading some information say, hey, that looks like an interesting book. I'm, I want to know more about Niels Bohr. Oh, you know, we've gone through embedded and curated and said, here's a great biography on Niels Bohr, go read about him. Or you're interested in the atomic bombing or the Trinity test, which the anniversary is I mean, tomorrow from the day that we're recording this. I want to know more about the Trinity test. You know, go get Richard Rose's book or here are all the other ones. And, you know, just like any other Amazon affiliate, you know, a few little pennies here, a few little pennies there. 
but it's enough to keep the servers running and the rest of it is all just a, a work of passion. Understood. Very good. And thank you for doing that. I mean, it's a, it's a great service you provide to researchers and educational institutions. You know, atomicheritage.org uh, has done the same thing where they've been trying to chronicle, you know, those who worked on the project before they pass away. You know, it's the 75th anniversary. There are very few people left who were involved in the Manhattan Project. You know, I believe, you know, we, the last member of the Enola Gay died about five, six years ago. Um, so, you know, it's, it's all just, you know, passing into history. You know, same thing like on the space side. It's like, okay, how many, you know, well, currently, how many men have walked on the moon who are still alive? And, you know, and every year it seems to be mm -hmm. one less. Uh, so, besides the National Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas, which, uh, or have you uh, visited any other attractions or exhibitions? So, long, long, long time ago, I did have the opportunity, what's it's now the National Museum of Atomic Energy, I always get their, they rebranded their name, the one in Albuquerque. So I unfortunately have not been up the hill to Los Alamos, but I was there back when it was still on Kirtland Air Force Base. So I have not visited the new one since they moved off the base and got the new building. Um, I am secretly, I love to travel. So this, this pandemic is, is killing me. I actually do have a whirlwind tour of New Mexico that includes heading up the hill to Los Alamos seeing the museum in Albuquerque and actually continuing on down to, to White Sands. So it, it's sitting on a digital file, just waiting to, waiting to be applied and, and hit the road. So yeah, I had, yeah, um, I have been, I, you know, I've seen, you know, little things like the, the night missile site outside of San Francisco. Uh, I've done the Titan Missile Museum, Although I want to go back because they're now offering top to bottom tours where you literally start at the bottom of the silo and get to see it, almost everything all the way up and out. And since my son will be attending ASU, uh, it's, you know, an hour and a half away. I think I can convince the, the wife for a side trip. Nice. Uh, where are you located? San Diego. I, I knew it was uh, somewhere in... Southern California-ish. I wasn't exactly sure where, but uh, yeah, the uh, all of those sound interesting. But the so-called Holy Grail, I guess, for most uh, researchers and aficionados of Cold War and atomic weaponry, would be the Trinity site to go out there. And they yeah. only allow that. Well, right now it's suspended, but they only even when it's not suspended, they only allow two tours a year. When they open that area. Yeah, uh, yeah and I, I was seem to be thwarted with the timing. I'm like, hey, can I go this? No, I can't. And that's actually one of those things where I have hoped, if I can ever get out there, maybe spend a little uh, social media credentials, kind of cred, um, and see if you can get out there through the PAO office, not go on a public tour, because they, they will take people out there. But yeah, you know, it's like the filmmakers get to go out there, kind of a thing. I've always wanted to go out to the Nevada test site, same thing. However, if you read, no photography. Well, 
I want to go shoot my old photos of the craters and survival town. But I'm like, I can't go on a regular tour. Because like, how come he gets to shoot and I can't? So and it's just a matter of timing and coordination. And so let's, uh, let's move on. And as we mentioned a couple times already, we're recording this on the eve of the 75th anniversary of the Trinity test, which is the world's first atomic bomb. So yeah, like we mentioned, you know, we're recording this on the eve of the 75th anniversary of the Trinity test, which was the accumulation of realistically three years of intense effort all across the U.S. to produce atomic bombs. And they were actually running in parallel. It's kind of like in some ways what's going on with the pandemic. You know, we have different pharmaceutical companies working in parallel to try to develop a vaccine against COVID-19. The scientists were doing the same thing. They were working with plutonium, which they knew would mission. And this new material really, I mean, plutonium was the new material and uranium as well, trying to develop both of these weapons. And over the course of those years, they found the plutonium option had some inherent risks, a lot of uncertainty about it. And you can read up about, you know, I mean, they have vetting pools of will it work, won't it work. I mean, they, and so they decided they had to run a test. And that test was the Trinity test. And they chose a site uh, about 200 miles south of Los Alamos after looking at some other ones, including the Channel Islands out here in California. And basically assembled what was effectively going to be the Batman bomb, the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki on August 9th. They raised it atop a 100-foot steel tower and detonated it. Now, what was interesting is, you know, all this work to prepare for the test. I mean, this is in the middle of nowhere. I mean, the only people around were some ranchers that they also had to deal with, to shoot them away or take care of them as well. They had to create an entire base camp, roads. There's the whole story of the, the jumbo device. So the jumbo device was this massive steel structure because plutonium was so rare and so expensive. General Groves, who oversaw, oversaw the project, was worried if it didn't quite work, would there be a way for us to reclaim this plutonium and try again? So they built this massive steel container. They wound up not using it, set it off the side, and it actually survived the, the Trinity test without a problem. It got damaged in a later, which is a whole other story. And I was thinking about, wait, if that bomb didn't work inside Jumbo, would I really want to go in and try to scrape out all the plutonium? I mean, who would want that job? And, and what would your life expectancy be? <laughs> but, you know, Trinity sat on the tower, and it's funny, you think in the middle of the desert, no problem. And they actually had to worry about weather. The test was actually slated to go off at four in the morning. No one's up, take the test. Well, they knew it was going to be very visible. I mean, they had well over 200 army personnel scattered all around with radioactivity detectors. And they had to, something went wrong, had to evacuate people. So they knew that they were dealing with something big and large. And uh, a thunderstorm rolled in. 
uh, wasn't nearly as dramatic as some of the authors write about it, but it was enough of a weather concern. They actually delayed it to the to the pre-dawn, uh, 529 Mountain War time, and detonated the device. And with that, they knew that the plutonium device would work. They had very high confidence that the uranium device, that was the little boy device, would work. And in fact, simultaneously while this is happening, the parts of the, the little boy were actually on board the USS Indianapolis en route to Tinian. So, and then once it was understood it was work, it, you know, the mood of the lab changed. Uh, was quite clear from a lot of the, the documents from the people who formally saw it. There were people who informally saw it. That um, it was it was a mixed bag. They had reached the culmination of all their efforts from a science, purely scientific point of view. You know, it was like, hey, the experiment worked, and now is the realization of what have we done? And it changed our world. It was, it was literally the point of no return at that, at that stage, because we had something that the rest of the world wanted, especially our, you know, our enemies and our allies. Uh, so fast forward a couple of weeks and we're still at war with Japan. We, we mm -hmm. decide to unleash hell on the Japanese versus sending a million troops to their death or an estimated million troops, American troops to their death and potentially 3 million uh, Japanese. Did you want to say anything about the, the, the two bombs dropped in Japan? So the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are a very complex subject. And there's a lot written about, you know, what did they really do? What did they do? And I, I kind of want to put it into in, in context. You know, the firebombings of, of Tokyo and Dresden were equi almost equivalent in their, in their death tolls. Um, at that point, the atomic bombs really weren't a magnitude order because a lot of us are looking back in, in the now where we're talking about, you know, 100 kilotons or megaton level weapons. You know, the, the Hiroshima bomb was woefully inefficient and, you know, just what was it, estimated about 12, maybe 14 kilotons. These were actually semi comparable. Now, with that understood, the efficiency changed. We now go from sending 200, 300 bombers over a target to, you know, one, and maybe two observation planes. So the efficiency level certainly changed. You know, there is definitely internal turmoil within Japan. You know, would the invasion have happened? Don't know. Would the, the Soviets, which finally did enter the war against Japan because they had not been at war with Japan until just recently, would that have changed? Um, naval blockades, would that affect it? You know, these are all interesting what ifs. The, um, actually, I think Hans Beta kind of put it probably the best, where he, and I tend to agree with him, that the bombing of Hiroshima was 
a necessity. It basically was a wartime demonstration. And there was you know, active work by Szilard and others to try to come up with some other method of basically warning Intel Japan. You know, they were, can we do a demonstration? Say, hey, we now have this big stick. You guys want to raise up the white flag and not lose the city? But there really wasn't a, a way to, you know, do some kind of a, a demonstration that made any sort of sense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that would be, that's a nice thought, but. But Hans Beta said, you know, the bombing of Hiroshima was a necessity. Nagasaki, no. Because we also also have to step back to 1945. You know, we're so used to picking up our phones and texting someone in the sort of land of almost instant communication. In 1945, that didn't exist. You know, the reports came in, hey, we had a bombing over the radio, you know, three bombs, something happened to Hiroshima. Hey, we need to get someone up there. All right, let me fly up and let me then try to call back. You know, remember, the city was gone. The infrastructure was gone. It's not like you you pick up your cell phone and be able to call. So some of the communication and ingestion by the Japanese leadership of, whoa, what happened, you know, wasn't allowed, you know, at the same pace that we sort of live our lives in. So there was a weather system coming in that actually would have delayed the ability to bomb Japan for a while. So Nagasaki actually got moved up in the timetable. Um, if you actually start reading the inner bits, um, Boxcar was not the initial plane. <laughs> um, but it got used because it was the one available. And I want to say it was the great artiste was supposed to be it, but they didn't have time to take off the observation equipment it had and flip it over. So, but, you know, and you have to remember, how much money was spent on the Manhattan Project to deliver. So there was also political and military pressure to use this. It, the, the U.S. could have very easily turned their back, said, look, you attacked us first. This is retaliation. We're done with you. We want nothing to do. Good luck. They didn't do that. So they, they did the responsible thing after the attacks, helped Japan rebuild. After that, um, they've become one of our closest allies, you know, and they still are to this day. So that's the way we really need to frame it, I think. And to argue about whether we should have done it or shouldn't have done it, that's kind of a moot point, my opinion. But it can never happen again. It should never happen again. I think we can all agree on that, right? Now, uh, one last thing about the the uh, bombings of Japan. This is another area that's somewhat hotly debated, and that's the beginning of the Cold War. Did it happen with the Trinity test? Did it happen with the bombings of Japan and the end of the war with Japan? Or did it happen sometime later with the goings-on in Europe? And that's an area that we can discuss a little bit. But uh, uh, it, it basically, the proliferation of nuclear weapons is what the Cold War was focused on. Um, now, what are your thoughts on the beginning of the Cold War? So the Cold War actually was brewing during World War II. 
the Soviets had spies in Los Alamos. We had Green, Gra uh, Green Glass, Ted Hall. So then, so when Truman sort of showed his hand a little bit at Potsdam, about hey, we got something really cool coming up that's going to you know take care of this war. Stalin fully knew what was going on, and it was always very clear that our relationship with the Soviet Union was a an enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of situation. There was, you know, there was no doubt that, you know, there was going to be post-war tension. And, you know, that's what Potsdam was set up to figure out how to carve up Europe. And there was also pressure, you know, I'm using, well, you know, can we keep the Soviets out of the Pacific? You know, keep them from getting uh, their fingers over there as well. So the Cold War really started materializing then. And, and with the end of World War II, you know, there was a brief respite as, you know, a modest amount of troops did come home. A fair amount, you know, did stay helping in the rebuilding of Japan as well as Europe. So the boys and gals, you know, didn't immediately just poof, all come home. And it was definitely setting up and the brewing of the tensions. And with the Operation Crossroads, which was two demonstration tests out in the Pacific, which are, the listeners have probably seen the footage dozens of times because they were, they were set up as a press event. There was, you know, this is the, the ones with the, the ships on the water and you see the, the Wilson cloud and the mushroom cloud. At that point, it was really clear that the U.S. and the Soviet Union, the two remaining superpowers of the world, were going to be having some kind of an issue. And that's literally what the next almost 50 years were like, as the, the threat of a very large weapon, atomic bombs and eventually thermonuclear weapons, you know, served as the foundations of the relationships between the two countries and their and their proxies. True. Yeah. And we can't leave that out because that's where we end up in war with Korea. Mm -hmm. And then lots of other places that, you know, Cuba, you know, the whole Cuban Missile Crisis. And, you know, when people forget, oh, by the way, there were missiles in Turkey, which is effectively, you know, what Cuba is to us, Turkey is to Russia. And then you have the other nations of the world starting saying, hey, what about me? France, and then India, then Pakistan, South Africa, Israel, you know, there are a lot of other countries have or have atomic weapon programs to a degree which usually are limited by treaties. But there's, there's stuff that went around all over the place. And what's interesting is, in some ways, the arms race is almost kind of like this, this COVID curve. You know, we had the, the buildup through the 80s and 90s, and then we had the, the drop down. And we may be entering a period where between the US and now Russia, we may be seeing a shift of the winds um, where, you know, more new weapons and, and maybe coming into play between these two countries. So sort of the, the honeymoon, I would say, that we had during the start of the INF Treaty may have passed and we may be back under a slightly more threatening nuclear cloud. So Agreed. Although 
and this is this is jumping a little bit ahead, but uh, there are weapons now that are that are non-nuclear that are nearly as devastating. So it it may be potentially it may be possible at some point to see a decline in in the development or not the development but the the buildup of nuclear weapons with new weapons that are coming online as as also possibly reliance i mean you also have to if you go back in history some of the earlier weapons the yields were so large were because the delivery systems were so poor so if you actually wanted to take down the factories or the city you just needed to just throw something big and then cross your fingers and hope that missile can hit it. Technology has moved in such a way, it's like, oh, do you want to go into the west door or the east door with that missile? Kind of a situation. So a lot more precision. And I think that's also what we're seeing in some of the direction we saw a little bit in the, the 2018 posture review of being able to use more of a, a scalpel rather than a sledgehammer. And that's been the evolution of a lot of weapon systems. Because if you can keep down the collateral damage, well, if you're coming in as a, a conquering foe, better for you. And also, hopefully better for your PR side as well. You know, we saw that you're, oh, go for. The one thing that nuclear weapons does have that, I think no other weapon, no other conventional weapon, or even the newer exotic weapons, uh, is the level of deterrence. Nuclear weapons, <clears throat> simply the threat of using those, those massive uh, casualty weapons or weapons of mass destruction, I guess, uh, the threat of using those have kept armies at bay and that's the reason why russia and the u.s never went into a face-to-face -face confrontation i believe that's my opinion but i think that's a a, a pretty well documented uh theory yeah we've we came close multiple times but it's always one of those things where you have as the world leaders you know have attested to there's a moment of pause there, there is a Rubicon that they look at and, you know, they were considered for use in, in Korea and Vietnam. Um, we came a lot closer in Cuba than we realized at the time. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, the ongoing risk is there's always the oopsies. Oh, there was, there, there's plenty of those. The weather rocket and that one bless his heart, you know, he passed away a few years ago, that lone Soviet operator who, if he had followed his rules, should have called up the chain of command and probably started World War III. But he just didn't believe it, and, you know, thankfully, we're still here. And luckily, luckily, he was in a high enough position to make that call, because if, if it had been left to his subordinates, I think they would have launched because they kept asking him time after time, should we launch? Should we? Now we're talking about an incident that m many of the listeners may not 
be familiar with? And I didn't have notes on this. So would you expound on that exactly a little bit more? The ballistic launch notification tree exists basically for this purpose. Whenever you launch a rocket, a missile of some kind, you notify the various other players in the world that, hey, we're going to do this. This is usually the case, like North Korea doesn't. But, you know, remember, there's no difference between a Falcon 9 and something else. In fact, actually this morning, there was a launch out of Wallops, uh, Virginia, uh, a NASA launch facility. There's more than just Florida and Vandenberg. They were actually launching a payload for the National Reconnaissance Office. It's on a Minotaur. The Minotaur is actually a derivative of the Peacekeeper or the MX missile. It's the same missile. This is, that is a nuclear weapon delivery system. So when you're going to have a launch of some kind, whether it be for a test or something, you know, like, hey, we're going to shoot up something into space or something of some kind. Don't get scared. Somehow that notice kind of got lost and happened. I don't remember the exact details. But all of a sudden, the Soviet radars pick up this, this launch and looking like it's coming over the poles, which is how the flight path would. And like, is this the first missile in a salvo that's going to destroy Mother Russia? And he said, it's just one. I didn't, there's really nothing, there were some tensions going on. I don't think so. I'm not gonna report it. I'm just gonna assume it's not. And thankfully it wasn't. So, um, yeah, there was some, since he just passed a few years ago, you can actually go online and actually read the whole story of, of, of that gentleman, of what almost political and moral risk he did by not sending up the chain of command. It's a fantastic story. You know, I want to give people an opportunity to do their own uh, additional research to, to, the, to these incidents that we talk about, because that one in particular, that was as close or or possibly closer than we've ever gotten to a full out nuclear war with the Soviet Union. So the name of the uh, Soviet soldier who, I mean, you could basically say he single-handedly averted World War III or full out nuclear war with Soviet Russia. Uh, his name is, his name is Stanislav Petrov. He died at the age of 77. And the incident that we're talking about took place in 1983. So anybody who's interested in looking that up, that's a, uh, I think that's a pretty important date or pretty, pretty important event in Cold War history that people should know about. Um, now, we, we touched on a couple of other incidents um, and even though the U.S. and Soviet Union never did have a face-to-face -face confrontation, we did come to blows several times through our proxies, like you said. And um, luckily, those uh, those conflicts did not escalate to the uh, to the final countdown. See what I did there. <laughs> uh, but we did get close a couple of times and I didn't put this in my notes, but there's a, there's a tool that a group of scientists, certain group of scientists use to calculate how close we are to doomsday called. Well, the, well, the, the Bolton atomic scientists 
have their doomsday clock. And then once a year, they basically hold a press release. I, I've had the honor of seeing it. Um, I've been to their offices in Chicago. Um, and then once a year, they basically change the time on the clock. Or sometimes they don't change the time, but they say, this is how close we are to midnight or doomsday. A couple of years ago, it got yeah. as close as it's ever been, and it was two minutes to midnight. And midnight is the the indicator of when supposedly we're going to be at doomsday, full-on nuclear war. Yeah. It, they also do look at you know, other additional threats. Well, they, they have, they have in recent years, that wasn't always the case. I mean, it was, it, it was created for tracking how close we are to nuclear war, but yeah, recently they've added uh, a, a, a few additional indicators that could, um, that could potentially spell the end of humanity. Right. And that publication and that, and that organization was actually founded from scientists on the Manhattan Project. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah, so, um, and the Federation of American Scientists as well. Basically, they realized sort of the responsibility, you know, that they have as part of what has been unleashed upon the world. And, you know, they, on one hand, understand, you know, science is something that is always going to be discovered. You know, on one hand, their brain will say, this is just a natural progression of discovery of science. Now, how do we, on the humanity side, deal with the discovery? So, and that was sort of, you know, their response of saying, okay, now hopefully, now that we sort of reach this threshold of effectively having the capability of extinguishing life as we know it on this planet, what can we do about it? You know, and a lot of them felt that they had an obligation to that. And some of that tension actually did play out throughout the years. The whole, some continued investigating in sciences where the whole Oppenheimer versus Teller controversy and war came into play with the loss of his Oppenheimer's security clearance, um, the rise of the Red Scare and all of that. And that's a completely another hour's worth of podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, we can do a follow-up at some point if you're open to it, because I, I can talk about this stuff all the time. Now, I just, uh, I went to the website, thebulletin.org. Uh, that's the website that hosts the Doomsday Clock, the official Doomsday clock, and the current standing is at 100 seconds to midnight. Now that's the closest that it's ever been. But like I said, the and like we agreed, there are additional indicators such as climate change, uh, the um, bioweapons, and those were not taken into consideration until just recently. Although, although, although it's, it's funny, you know, living sort of in this sort of dark space, you know, thinking about nuclear weapons and such, I personally have always been more fearful of biological type of situations um, because the, the, as we're seeing in this COVID, you know, this is, you know, ongoing, it keeps on, you know, it's a gift that keeps on giving, you know, a little dark humor, you know, with, uh, 
yes, there's radioactive fallout after an atomic weapon, but it's kind of like it's over and done. You know, the the weapon happens, there's cleanup from the fallout, and you kind of move on even at a limited scale. The the pandemic is this sort of invisibility. It's, it's that same fear that you have with say radioactive fallout. But it's like, oh, but there wasn't a direct, you know, there wasn't a mushroom cloud. There was just something. Okay. So so the end of the Cold War is hotly debated and in some cases more than how how it got started but uh, some feel it ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall though others think that it happened with the fall of the Soviet Union and what is your feeling on this? I've actually changed my position on it so those were two you know major milestones I mean when the Berlin Wall fell and you saw the reunification journey which was always, you know, one of the focal points uh, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Here was this country that was, you know, ripped into two as as part of the Potsdam Declaration from World War II. You know, it, it sort of served as the poster child between the two um, systems. And then, obviously, when the Soviet Union collapsed, well, the evil empire is gone. I now don't fully subscribe, I mean, I call it the end of the Cold War on the website, I don't fully subscribe that the Cold War ended. In a lot of ways, Russia just simply replaced what was the Soviet Union. I mean, look at how long, you know, Putin is basically an effective dictator. Yes, he's, quote, elected, but, you know, he is, you know, his, his reign, his, well, exceeds quite a few of the Soviet premiers. And in a lot of ways, the, the tensions between the two are as tense as they were. Now, what is different is there are more opportunities that the two nations have gotten along, sort of like during that honeymoon phase. So after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was kind of hope that, you know, maybe democracy will take hold and, the, and what was now Russia, Commonwealth, and the United States sort of becomes, you know, something anew. However, what we're seeing is that has been truly the case. It's sort of this interesting sort of oligarchy, this capitalistic, you know, robber baron type of system of, of Russia. And we're seeing the rise of, of so Russian military that looks very similar to what we saw before. So, this might be one of those, hey, I'm looking for a master's thesis topic, you know, go run with it. You might, I think you can make a strong argument that the Cold War has not ended. It is just, it took a pause and transformed because a lot of the same tenets are still there. That's a good point. You, you do have, uh, and, and I've heard that theory several times. Um, I've also heard the theory that we are, currently experiencing Cold War 2.0. And I, I could go with that. I kind of feel that that's more appropriate because I think the struggle between the Soviets or, or the Western and the Eastern uh, states, those, those two philosophies, I feel that that effectively ended with the fall of the Soviet Union. You're right. The, the ideological components 
aren't nearly the same. When you know, Cold War One was clearly communism versus you know American freedom and democracy, and that is no longer one of the cornerstones between the tensions between Russia and, and the U.S. So yeah, yeah, because that hun that honeymoon, you know, the question was, is it a honeymoon or is it a here's the next cycle? You know, was World War Two just a continuation of World War One? What do you do with the decades in between? You know, discuss amongst yourselves. And some people even speculate that since World War II ended, not only have were we are we in a continuous Cold War, but it could also be considered World War because we're we've got our hands in every corner of the world. And I mean, the U.S has our hands in every corner of the world. Whereas our, I don't know if they, we can actually call them our enemies though, because who would we consider enemies? North Korea? Somewhat China. Uh, well, but, but, but not, China. But not, but, not, but, not to the same, but not to the same level. And you're right, not to the same level as we would say in, in the past. I would say, I, I would frame that as an adversary not an enemy. An enemy means somebody that there's there's no there's no way out of this confrontation without shooting. That's an enemy, and, and I, I think a, an adversary. Based off of that definition, huh? yeah. Based off that definition, yeah. I think probably North Korea, Iran, would probably be the only two countries that come to mind that would fall kind of under that definition where it seems like it's, you know, a very, a very bleak interactional confrontational uh, solution. Yeah. Now, I, I agree with you that we are on the cusp of a, a, a potential conflict with China because of their aggression, <clears throat> mainly in the South China Sea, but also they're making moves in Africa as well. So that's a, uh, oh, well, and not only that, they've been taking advantage of our, um, as of our open trade with them for decades. You know, they've been stealing our intellectual property and, um, just biding their time until they had the, the military might to start making strong moves, which is what I see that they're doing right now. That's just my opinion. So if anybody's offended by that, I'm sorry. I don't want to try to make this a political discussion. I'm just giving you my observations and my, based on my observations, what I think is going on now. And, you know, my friend Chris here, my, my new friend Chris here might have a different opinion and I'm certainly open to listen to hear what you have to say about that, my man. Well, China China's always been an interesting one. So if we actually look back through the Cold War on the development of nuclear weapons, you know, yes, they acquired them in part with help from Russia being sort of a another communist country, but they their arsenal isn't that large. It literally for them it's like just enough. It literally is almost the definition of minimal deterrence. Just enough to say, don't mess with me. Uh, until recently, though. 
they actually they they've been modernizing, but they haven't been expanding the their capability really much. Um, there's been some modernization, which you know happens. What we are seeing is a more growth in their desire for influence on the world stage. And I think some of that is directly related to somewhat the breakup of the Soviet Union, where I think they saw an opportunity to step it up because they were no longer the kid, you know, the little brother. And worse, and they definitely, I think, are starting to try to push their way more into the powers that be in the power vacuums. And it's like, where are the next opportunities for influence, growth, power, control? You know, you know, we see this, for example, you know, every once in a while, you know, rolls in through Facebook. Hey, do you actually really know what the world looks like in terms of a proper map? I mean, there's a great old West Wing episode about this. You know, we don't realize how freaking huge Africa is and the amount of resources in there. So it's like, hmm, where am I going to get all these rare minerals for our iPhones and our computers and our batteries for our cars, et cetera, et cetera. Uranium. So uranium is, is in heavy quantities in Africa. Yeah. I mean, there are, you know, does power work in, you know, Solar is great, but it requires, you know, resources as well to make the panels. So the, the warfare, not really the right word, is shifting into sort of uh, capitalistic resources. Where can I get what I need to make my country strong? And how do I make my country strong, you know, in a capitalistic society? So... That's in part what we're seeing with the rise of, of some of these nations, particularly with, with China. Um, India is the same thing, where you know they are a rather large country, a very populous country, looking also to become you know even stronger on the world stage. I mean, think about how much comes out of India. You know, I'm up every every morning, you know, on conference calls with our teams in India. And there's a reason for that. Uh -huh. I worry less about a large scale. I, I worry about an India-Pakistan event. Yeah. I worry about a conventional attack on, say, Israel and what their response might be. Um, those, those are the areas I think have, have, have a lot more, more risk. Now, the upside is they would have global impact, however, not to the same degree. It's like, oh, you didn't die, but you only lost a leg. You know, oh, well, you know, not to be grim or dismissive of it, but it, it is at a, it's at a different scale. Now, a regional conflict, say, between Pakistan and, and India of a magnitude would have environmental consequences globally so you know it's not something to be oh it's just a couple no it, it, it's still something for those who are, are concerned about these issues who want to i mean we can never put the genie back in the bottle but you know containing ourselves to a point of of survivability 
And fundamentally, I mean, that was the core of, you know, why I worked on this, why I continue to work on this project. Because as long as people are informed, because this is really what happened sort of with the fall of the Cold War, people kind of forgot about it. But the weapons didn't go away. Yeah. They're still there. The missiles are still in the silo. You're right. That's what we're facing now. We're facing the consequences of our almost almost laziness in lowering our defenses and letting uh, you know letting th- the chips fall where they may. Right. And now you got the, I mean, the buildup of the Russian army again, like you said, and Cold War 2.0 is, is right. If if not already here, we're right on the cusp of it. I mean, another historical example was the limited test ban treaty, which stopped atmospheric testing. Well, when people were seeing these massive mushroom clouds and these craters, there was there was a lot of outcry with the fallout. But once it went underground, out of sight, out of mind, it actually wound up causing more damage and allowed a lot more weapons to be created because it was behind the scenes. You didn't see it. You know, Good point. You didn't have that mushroom cloud, you know, you know, off in the distance. I mean, you're in Las Vegas. There's some classic shots of, you know, the neon signs of the strip and a mushroom cloud off in the distance or, you know, Misotonic insanity, man. I, I, you know, I think about those times, and to me, or, or for example, the the one thing that, uh, it, it's just so hard for me to wrap my head around, is the fact that they actually put military troops in the field, exploded or detonated a nuclear device, and then had those troops walk towards it to prove that they can, they can fight, you know, they can fight with conventional weapons during a nuclear attack. That is just a level of insanity that we can never go back to. And people, if they don't know about it or they forget about it, there's a potential that we can repeat those stupid mistakes, man. Welcome to history. Welcome to history. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's a great way to, to bring it full circle and, uh, and close it out. But before I do, uh, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners? You know, as the 75th anniversaries are, are upon us, you know, I would love that each listener would actually take a moment to, to reflect on the events, you know, how and what can I do to affect my world? Um, you know, look back at the, what Trinity, what the world brought us, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where we are now, you know, is there some small little part that we can play in, you know, taking and moving humanity, you know, hopefully in the right direction, a little more forward. That's, that's always my goal. So Good thoughts. You know, I, I, I want my flying car. I want to see people on Mars. I want a moon base. But, you know, there's this threat over us. <laughs> Definitely. Um, <clears throat> so we, we have a, a lot to move past, but the potential for humanity is, is there. Um, now what, uh, what is in future that speaking of the future, what's in, what's in store for the future of atomicarchive.com? Um, so, you know, I finally pushed out a new version. So it's now, you know, finally mobile friendly, 
there were some sections I hadn't migrated yet, so I'll still be hacking those out and pushing those. Um, I have some other older resources living on a shelf I'd love to, to grab and put out there. Um, those are the main things. And what's nice with the redesign is hopefully is now sort of technologically stable. That's always the challenge with the, with the digital project is technology changes, you know, as opposed to, you know, I can still grab, like I said, the Smythe report from 1946 off my bookshelf and it still works. So I, I think about those sort of digital problems. I actually uncovered my very first computer program from 1984 on, on my old girlfriend found it in a box in her house in Minnesota and she mailed it to me. It's a five and a quarter inch floppy disk. And I'm like, I have no way to even look at this ever again. Well, if I try really, really, really hard, I could probably find a system somewhere that someone has. But it's like, here's content that's lost. And in some ways that's kind of the only thing that's kind of rolling in my head is how to preserve the legacy of all this for future generations to learn and grow from. Yeah. Well, digital is certainly here to stay for the foreseeable future. I don't think digital is going to go away anytime soon. Uh, I mean, for me, one of the other things is, you know, there have been, there have been some other great websites out there on, on this topic and several of them have been, you know, abandoned and forgotten. You know, they're living on some little subdirectory on a, server on some college. And I had several of them sort of archived myself. And it may be one of those things where I also pick up those and like, okay, how do I, how do we preserve this? You know, there's, you know, I'm not making any money off this, but is, is there a way to, you know, preserve the legacy and the work? Yeah, that's a so. good point. The, um, the, the, the people who do these type of projects like the atomicarchive.com and, <clears throat> uh, is it atomicheritage.org? Is that the other website you mentioned? Right, yeah. And I know that, you know, they're set up for funding. They're an actual real 501c, and they do fantastic work. Actually, they were one of the main drivers behind adding the Manhattan Project heritage site to the National Park System. So, you know, they do fantastic work. But, you know, there, there are lots of, you know, Lewis and Clark, uh, university had a project, you know, I mentioned earlier, the National Science Digital Library project that we had. It was really neat, but due to technological security issues, the data system the server was on had to be taken down and there was no funding to rebuild it. So it is now, you know, lost like the Library of Alexandria. And realistically, a lot of the funding for projects like yours that are that are personally owned that that funding is almost non-existent unless you like you said you funded through sales book sales through amazon uh, yeah. you had that grant but that grant is no longer in existence exactly. uh, so i mean if if there was a way to to get funding for these type of projects uh what could people do to to get involved and and also, how could people get in contact with you if they wanted to get involved in some way? So I mean, they can just email me, you know, webmaster at Atomic Archive. Um, I'm 
It's probably the, one of the easier ways. Really, you know, you know, I do, this is a passion project. And, you know, I've never really thought about, oh, let it become a, a Patreon site or something like that. Um, I know there's a, I think you almost name. He's actually New Mexico. He's a, an archeologist actually, an anthropologist, excuse me, an anthropologist on nuclear issues. And he does some fantastic work. Um, and then there are various, you know, real organizations, you know, the Nuclear Threat Initiative, Ban the Bomb, the Carnegie Endowment for Peace. You know, you know, if you if you really care, those those are the ones who have impact. You know, I, I'm just a simple guy in, in San Diego who, you know, who cares and just kind of puts this together. Cool. Uh, well, do you have a social media presence? If anybody wanted to reach out on Twitter, say Facebook, something like that. Uh, I am on Twitter, so I'm Chris Griffith on Twitter. Um, you will, it'll be a mix of hiking, space, uh, some politics. Um, I really haven't gone around, I think in part because the website needed an update, I really didn't want to do anything with it because it was, it was shameful. Um, now that it's a little more alive, maybe I'll become a little more active in, in, in that sphere. So, um, but... I'm also a, I, I love space flight. I'm also a, a peak bagger. So I go out hiking and try to get to the summits of peaks. So if you do follow me, just, just be forewarned. Uh, as long as it's not political stuff. I, I hate to see political. I, I, I am political, but yeah, but, um, but you also get a fair amount. I also, have seen all the American crewed space capsules. I also I go around and chase down space artifacts as well. Things like, oh, here's the net that was used to hoist the Apollo 11 astronauts from the Pacific into the helicopter. And oh, here's the helicopter. Cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, sharing your time and your knowledge with the the listeners of this podcast. And hopefully, you know, if if time allows sometime in the future, we could get together and have another conversation. Oh, I, I would, I would enjoy that. Um, we should probably, what would probably be an interesting one would be probably how the space race and the atomic world kind of co-blended. Well, yeah, space is another area that I'm interested in. Um, you know, and yeah, well here, go to uh, spacequest.wordpress.com. And that's all my space-related stuff. Okay, cool. I would check that out. So for this episode, Dead Hand Radio, I think that just about wraps it up for for our conversation, Chris. I, again, sounds good to be in here and spending so much time with me. And I look forward to talking to you again sometime. Sounds good. Now go have some lunch, right? <laughs> all right. Uh, take care, Chris. I'll talk to you again. You too. All right. Bye. Dead Hand Radio is a podcast about the Cold War, its history, and the effects it had on our culture, technology, and the future of our world. My goal is to examine these and other topics and guide listeners and guests of the show on a journey of mind-expanding contemplation, to learn, to educate, to entertain, and exchange ideas with those interested. 
So join me, and together we'll explore a fascinating period of history and examine some incredible advancements in weapons, technology, science, art, and culture, and discuss how all of it relates to the future of our world. If you or someone you know has knowledge about the Cold War or any other topics we discuss on this program, please get in touch and let's talk. It could be a great conversation for a future episode, and I'm especially interested to talk with anyone who has first-hand knowledge of these topics. If you have questions or comments, drop me an email or visit deadhandradio.com. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Dead Hand Radio is part of the SIP Network, a group of high-energy, positive-minded individuals providing a resource for listeners with a variety of podcasts from entertainment and education to motivation and inspiration for your daily routine. Visit sipnet.us and learn more about these excellent podcasts. I'm Andrew Hall, and this is Dead Hand Radio. Thanks for listening.